you are a person, not a dog on a leash or some uh, animal being yes. down the path of life. And as a young child, you are really on the leash. You are taken places by parents. You are said, don't go there, go here. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to today's episode. We have a very important guest today. Our guest is New York Times bestselling author with her first book, How to Raise an Adult. Then her second book, which is critically acclaimed and award-winning book, her memoir, Real American, where she shares her experience on being black and biracial in the white space. Now her third book, which I love it, let me tell you, your turn, how to be an adult. Look at the size of this book. <laughs> Look at the size. And this is packed with so much information. And we're going to talk about it in detail. But please help me in welcoming author of these books, Julie Ditkort Hans. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Julie. Harpreet, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here and very excited to be here with you and your, your listeners and your followers. Yes, yeah. Uh, like we were talking about like before recording, majority of my audience is like international students between 18 to 30. Uh, last time I checked the analytics and their students like coming from South Asian countries, you know, like from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, in Canada, majority are students in Canada, but uh, in Australia, New Zealand and US as well. So I really want to uh, have a conversation surrounding them so we can like provide value in their lives. Good. So, uh, so could you please tell me, because these are the people who are leaving their family behind, you know, like they're coming to a new country, they're going to study here, maybe get a job or get settled down in a few years. What, do you, what you would advise to them is like how they can be a good adult. I love it. Well, first of all, I wrote this book for people 18 to 34 um, who are at the precipice of adulting, a little scared, maybe very scared, wondering, do I have the right skills? What are the right skills? How am I supposed to feel? It's very normal in this day and age to feel some degree of worry and trepidation around that. And that's why I've written this massive book, as yes. you said, um, for you, for your target audience. I have a lot of compassion for people your age and stage who are feeling afraid or worried that you don't know how to be an adult. It has become really normal to fear that and to wonder, what does it mean to be an adult? How do I know if I'm doing it right? What is adulting all about? I've written this book in response to that. And I share a lot of my stumbles. I'm 53, so my young adult years are well behind me. But in this book, it's not just you should do this, you should do that. It's like, let me tell you the story of the time when I screwed this up. Because maybe mm -hmm. you will learn from the lessons, um, th the things that I learned the hard way, I'm trying to offer readers so that it's not quite as hard for them. And I tell this book therefore in a lot of storytelling but not just my stories harpreet i yeah, i've yes. three dozen other people and two of them come to mind as you describe the people that follow you here mm -hmm. and where they're from there are at least two people in my book who are like the people you described so i have in here uh a, an australian guy who's 24 who discovers with his girlfriend that they're having a baby unexpectedly and wow how they cope with all of that and the family that they become the three of them is a beautiful story of you know how you keep going in the face of life's challenges which is a huge theme of adulting then there's another guy who's a child of um 
of Korean immigrants and the pressure that he feels to be exactly what his family expects him to be in terms of what he studies and his profession and how he manages to be both respectful with his mother and ultimately very true to himself when he realizes with his hand inside a the a mouth of a patient in dental school so he's at harvard dental school which is what he and his family decided was the thing and he has his hand in the mouth of a patient doing dentistry when he realizes i don't like this i don't want to do this and he figures out how to very respectfully speak with his mother over many conversations about his dissatisfaction with the path they had always wanted and ultimately he pivoted and is doing something completely different and something that nobody would have ever said was okay, but he's doing it and making a wonderful living. I mean, you know, good life. And he's proud of himself and his mother is proud of him too. So just, it, you know, there, there are stories in this book that I think your, your followers, your listeners are gonna resonate with. Um, to, to, to your question, what, it, what was it? <laughs> well, I forgot. Like, what is adult? How would you advise these young international students in Canada? Like, what is adulting? Yeah, so the first piece of advice is, hey this is your life there isn't a right track or a right path you're supposed to be on there isn't a right program or a right school okay mm -hmm. those are external definitions and people will be happy to tell you that those things exist but i'm here to say that is bullshit. and what matters is what is the right path for you right mm -hmm. now okay there are really so many so many different options you're supposed to be figuring out in your young adulthood two things what am i good at in terms of the you know schoolwork and the things i like to study or the ways i like being in the world in terms of the skills that i enjoy deploying what am i good at and also what do i love mm -hmm. and you're trying to find work that's at the intersection of what you're good at and you love there's this venn diagram sweet spot overlap of all the things you're good at and all the things you love you're looking for the overlap because harpreet if you're just here studying something you're good at and everyone's like you're good at it so you should study it and you should become it but you don't love it yeah you're gonna feel desperately unhappy with your life even though you might look successful and of course the converse is true if you're just good at it but you don't really have an aptitude for it. You're not likely to get better at it. It's not gonna be your job. It's gonna be a little hobby, a fun thing you do on the side. So this is the sweet spot. And you're supposed to spend these years from 18 then to 22, into 25, into 30, gathering data from what you studied and how it felt, that internship you did and how it felt that job you had and what was that like and you're gathering the data that are going to ultimately present the pattern to you of oh i really need to be outside for work oh i really love research oh i i have to work with people these are big examples of what you might discover about yourself really only after living some of life you know i was miserable in my first job um making hardly any money making three dollars an hour back in the day, I was outdoors working on a farm and I hated it. I got a job for the same amount of money, $3, as a waitress in a restaurant. It was also very hard work, not very pleasant, but I got to be with people 
in that job as a waitress, even though it was the same amount of money, it was so much better because I'm a person and I got to be around people. And that was an important lesson for me to learn at age 18. Wow. And you mentioned like you have to find switch, uh, sweet uh, spot. This is not easy, I would say, like, because I, I have deal with this situation. How would you say, like, how can young minds find this uh, sweet spot? Like, how you do work, but how you would know, like, you truly love that work? Yeah. Well, you have to ask yourself. So you, as a young person, have in your mind all of the voices of expectation mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, mm -hmm. aunties, uncles, peers, right? Society, you have all of their opinions in your head. They're filling your brain, they're filling your spirit. And what you have to do is be curious. You wanna be, you wanna have a dialogue with yourself where you say, okay, for five minutes, I'm gonna push everyone else's expectations about what success is or what matters to the side for a minute for five minutes. And I'm going to be curious to ask myself, hey, self, what would I do if no one else's opinion mattered? For real, self, what would I do if no one else's opinion mattered? If you invite it, you're trying to have a conversation with yourself, the answers will start to come. You might really have to poke, you're poking at yourself like, hey, self, what you think matters. It's not just about them. Like what what would you do if it if no one else's opinion mattered? What would you do if they would be happy with whatever you chose? What is that one thing you thought, oh, I'd love to do that, but that's not practical. I could never. Just brainstorming with the self where there are no bad ideas. You're giving the self, the spirit, the soul, wherever you think these innermost wisdoms lie within you, you're giving that piece of you permission to speak to your consciousness. Yeah. And then you have to write down what you hear in a diary somewhere or in your phone somewhere private where you can be like, and then you have to over time develop the courage to say, hmm, well, I'm actually interested in this. I think I might actually, and you have to have the courage to be more curious. Well, what might I do in furtherance of that? Why couldn't I? Maybe I could give it a try. And um, so it's really about a dialogue with yourself and then giving yourself permission to follow up on whatever you hear. Yes, I love it. And you know, like you mentioned, you shouldn't worry about the expectations of people around you. And you also like give the example earlier of the Korean student. I want to talk about like in the Asian culture, like the Korean student, we usually like live in a family, joint family with generations of family live together, right? Like grandparents, parents, and kids. And usually like senior people in the household love to micromanage the kids' decision, the grandchild decision. Okay, you have to go. Like in, in our society, either you are engineer, doctor, or lawyer. So how would you say like, and this is like not just common in the Asian culture. This is common at every household, at every race. What do you think, like, at what extent is that acceptable? Like, micromanaging everything uh, of your sibling, of your child's, okay, you should do this, you should go for it. Well, every family is uh, different, and yet there are these commonalities. And I want to be very respectful of family and cultural values that say, parents should tell a child what to do. Child should listen to parents. At the same time, my vantage point is 
you are a person, not a dog on a leash or some other uh, animal yes. down the path of life. And as a young child, you are really on the leash. You are taken places by parents. You are said, don't go there, go here. They're really steering you and guiding you. And at some point that ends. At some point, we want that to end. At some point, we become the parent raising the next generation and we're looking after the elders, right? We don't want to be a dog on a leash forever. So you have to ask yourself, okay, when when am I, given my, my financial circumstances, given my family situation, when am I going to be ready to go a little bit off leash, okay? Where you're going to, maybe it's 18, maybe, you know, for a lot of us, it's I need to be financially independent of my family so that I can make my decisions. And if they don't like it, it's not like they can cut me off financially. If you come from people with money, they will try to do that. So what you want to get is more financially independent so that you have the, the standing to say, you know what, folks, I love you. I respect you. I appreciate you. And I'm going to go in this direction because this is what makes me uh, feel real curiosity and engagement in my work and join. You may not understand it, but I hope you know that I love you and I know you love me. And even if you can't understand it, I hope you can be happy for me that I am finding my way. And this is a conversation we can have with greater confidence, the older we get and the more financially independent we are. If you are totally dependent on your parent financially, you know, one of the first things they're going to say is, you know, that's all well and good, but as long as you're living under my house, it's going to yeah. be and you need to be a doctor. So if you don't want to be a doctor, one of the first things you need to do is say, okay, where am I going to move to? What kind of job am I going to get so I can pay my rent so that I can be independent and free and not have to go to medical school just because my parents are controlling every aspect of my life? Oh, love it. And you mentioned now, just like, <laughs> you, like you gave a beautiful example of a lease and you after becoming financially independent and then you become parents yourself and then you do same thing which your parents were doing before what would you advise to these listeners because i mentioned we are like mid-20s early 30s we are maybe most of us are going to be married or gonna be parents soon in future what would you advise to us like how we can become better parent in future well, you want to take your own memory of what you have felt like as a child mm -hmm. and see if you can write down four or five things your parents did that you think was good and four or five things that you would not like to repeat, things you'd like to do differently. And write those down somewhere where you're going to be able to reference them. You know, you may say, my parents put so much pressure on me to be as this. Um, let's make sure you remember that when your own child is eight or 12 or 15 and you're pushing them because you've decided no i know what's best what you want to do is summon the memory of your own self as a child to bring compassion to what you're trying to do now with your own child we do not want to repeat these mistakes particularly these mistakes around control um we've got to get really clear in a philosophical sense that these children of ours are not our property. They're not our pets. They're not our project. They're not the evidence of our worth as a human. They are a different human being. They have their own journey. They have their own gifts. They have their own challenges. We're supposed to provide them with food and shelter and love and get out of their way so that they can figure out what am I good at? What do I love? And what do I want out of this life? It's really oh, wow. empathy 
for our own children when we have them empathy based on our own experience as a child who may have been too forcefully handled uh, and what would you say like then we, because at, at the young age like uh, for our kids we're gonna actually like do manage their where they're going because they don't know that much but at what age we should start backing up or like now let's have them do their own and let's have them to figure out their own life well harpreet it really begins uh when they learn how to walk wow. um okay and i have a uh little cartoon on my website um that i'll give you and you can pop in the link so my website julielifcotthames.com one of my books how to raise an adult which is on parenting there's this little video clip that talks about how we begin to teach kids skills and um and the overview says when they learn to walk they're walking away and if you recall when when a child is learning to walk um they uh they fall they're not good at it at the start same with learning to ride a bike they wobble they fall off and to overparent, to control would be to always keep your body right next to them so they couldn't fall when they were trying to walk. They would just always fall gently into you and you would just prop them back up or to like hold them by the, you know, this underneath their armpits and hold them so they could walk. That would be overparenting. Uh, they would look like they were walking, but we are providing all of the support and they're not really developing the sense of balance, the core strength or the leg strength in order to walk okay they have to stumble and fall a lot to build the strength that's a visual metaphor we should take forward into parenting every single thing has to be learned in the same way instead of us doing it for them kind of holding on to them and pretending they're walking getting them to the to wherever because we help them no 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 we need to raise kids who are skilled so they can get places on their own and so learning to walk which happens around age one is really the beginning of that skill development where we don't want to do it for them we want to make sure the environment is safe they're not going to try to walk and fall into a very sharp object our job is to keep the environment safe so that they can practice the skills and the older they get the more you know it's it, it's learned to walk across your kitchen floor to learn to cross a street they have to be taught to cross streets um, they have to learn how to use the stove instead of oh i could never let them use the stove it's so dangerous well at what point do you think your concern about safety will be overridden by the embarrassment that your kid doesn't know how to make a meal i just met somebody the other day who's still cutting food for her 15 year old son and she says julia i know i shouldn't i'm like yeah no you shouldn't 15 he should be able to cut his own food and this is an able-bodied person this isn't a child who has a physical disability she's like well it's just easier if i do it and he complained like you know hey mom cut my food and i just looked at her like what the are you doing you are undermining this kid's chances to be a healthy thriving adult because you're cutting his food which is something he should have started doing when he was seven and now he's 15 what else can't he do you know so we it's all along is the point you don't just start you adopt the mindset as a parent of a little one like okay my job is to teach you to do everything so one day you will leave our home and know how to cross the street cut your food tie your shoes wipe your own body you know from the bathroom like everything is supposed to be taught to them so they can do for themselves 
And a kid who's been taught to do stuff along the way will feel more confident in young adulthood. It won't seem so fearful of a place. Wow. And what would then what do you advise to that woman? Like if if it's very hard to the parents to if they can't help it, what can how can they even start with? Because it's just very hard to do that. I mean, let's zero in here on the picture, Harpreet. We have a 15-year-old able-bodied person whose parent is leaning over the dinner table and cutting his food. Okay, it's absurd, right? We can all, I think, agree to that. It's not, it's infantilization, you know? Yeah. It's just, it's like, or it's this excessive um, privilege where you, it's almost like, well, I have a limo driver who drives me everywhere and I have a maid who cleans up after me. And now my mother's like my valet who just cuts my food and it's going to stick it in my mouth. What kind of life is that? It's not a life. So what, what I would say is two things. Number one, that parent needs to get right with herself, probably through some therapy about why am I controlling my kid? Why am I acting like my kid is so helpless? She probably feels needed useful, helpful, which is so important to her that she's going to go for that feeling instead of recognizing, but I'm undermining my kid because he can't cut, you know, things. All right. She's got to get some therapy, good conversation around why am I doing that to my kid? Um, and then I think her kid is also complacent. Kids like, I'm yeah. just going to back while mom cuts my meat We've got to say to him, hey, kid, yeah, this is all nice and helpful, but just like you learn to wipe your own butt, you have to learn to <laughs> food. And because one day you're going to be out in the world with some friends at a pub, you know, at a bar, at a restaurant, and you're going to pick up the knife and realize, oh my gosh, you know, her, she said her kid, when he, when he picks up a piece of meat, he takes a fork and just puts it in the whole piece and lifts it to his mouth like a caveman. And that at some point, his peers are going to say, dude, what are you doing? That's ridiculous. Cut your food. And she will have put him in that position of being that embarrassed. And I don't want that to happen to the kid. You know, I want him to learn that skill before he leaves home. And we need, you know, hopefully he'll, he'll want to learn that too. But if he doesn't, the parent has to put their feet down and say, you know what? I've been cutting your food all your life. It's time I taught you. Or if you feel like, you know, just from now on, you're going to figure this out. You know, you have to put an end to it, hopefully by doing some teaching. Certainly if it's across the street, you don't just go from, I'm going to carry you across the street to I'm going to set you down. Good luck. No, no, no. You're supposed to, after doing it for them forever, you're supposed to teach them to do it and then watch them do what you've taught to be there just in case a car comes by and they're trying to cross the street. And then finally they can cross the street on their own. It's really a four-step method. First you do it for them, then you do it with them, teaching them, then you watch them do it just in case, and then they can do it independently. This four-step method applies to every single skill. So important. I love it. And, you know, like, there are so many stories like this in your book, and these are the real stories. And this is one of the things I really love because people say you really learn fast from the other people's mistakes. And from this story, you see, like, what these people did wrong, what they did right, and how their life got impacted by their decision. There are so many stories and I'm just curious on how you gather so many stories, like people come to you with the stories or you interview them. 
like how how you find find all these toys and put it in one place well harpreet i'm a people person i like people i like listening to people's stories i care about what they're what they're experiencing um people all my life have told me they feel safe around me they feel they can open up to me so um i think i deploy that as i'm writing a book like this i listen for good stories out in the world so for example as you know because you've been reading the book chapter two uh, which is on fending for yourself the basic life body take care of body take care of your belongings take care of your bills you know get your own place one of those stories is from a guy named levi who was my lift driver my car broke down two and a half hours from home and i the best solution it was me and my family my husband stayed with the car got a tow truck but the tow truck couldn't fit the rest of us so we got a lift home and the driver who was this 23 year old dude said to me at some point um you know we're talking about what do you do what do you do he's a student in community college i'm writing this book and on adulting he's like oh my parents told me i had to be up and out by the age of 18. And he started to tell me about this childhood message and mantra and how challenging it was. And I said, hey, you know, I'm really rooting for you to succeed at this. And I think your story might help others. Can I call you? Can I have your number, Lyft driver, and call you at a later date and interview you for my book? And he said, yes. So a lot of times it was me just summoning my bravery and asking a stranger like, hey, I really like what you're about or what you've been through or what you have to offer. Would you be willing? And very often they were. Then it was also, you know, my own network of people and then people they knew. So I could say to my network, hey, I'm writing a book on adulting. I need some good stories about how people got out of debt, you know, how they managed their money over time. And, you know, maybe stories came to me that way. There's a story of a guy named Wesley who's a driver for UPS, you know, the big brown trucks that deliver packages. And, you know, he was stacking shelves at a supermarket, uh, kind of a working class uh, child of a, widowed mom they hardly had any money he was largely on his own in high school and working at a dead-end job stacking shelves at a supermarket happens to be a black guy his boss seemed to think like this is what black people should do just stock shelves at a supermarket there's no future for you but you know his uncle reminded him you know you need to go get a college degree and so wesley did he got his associate's degree and he realized you know what i um i enjoy being outdoors i like i want a job where i can kind of just not i don't want to sit at a desk all my life well the long and short of it is he became a ups driver it's a hard job to get but ups is a very loyal employer and he just retired from 35 years with them and he has a pension to support him and his wife and kid in his retirement he has health insurance he's bought a second home with the money he earned as a driver for for ups and this is just a lovely example of a path somebody took that was so much more financially secure than his upbringing and the hard work and choices he made to get himself there. And there's a lot of people listening, like, I don't wanna be a UPS driver. Well, fine, I'm not saying you have to be, but if you know you like to be up and down outdoors, constantly on the go, if you love driving, maybe UPS turns out to be a great employer for you um, in the immediate term and in the long run. So I try to give all these different examples of how life is lived and every one of my pages has been on a journey and is in a better place th than they were. And in the book, I'm trying to chronicle like th what they went through. You know, like this is what I love about you. Like you're not just talking about the adulthood, you're talking about every aspects, every phases of like 
adult life, work life, relationships, family in your book. And you know, like, uh, I'm not sure about all the books, but the books I have read so far is that the writer usually tackles one scenario, one, one genre, one concept, do their research and put all, uh, all the information together and write one book. But you cover everything from finances for 401k. In Canada, we have TFSA. And it can be easily seen that a lot of research has been done for this one. How much you prepared for this book alone? Like, I, I'm just so much curious. Yeah, I think it took me about two years to write it. Uh, and part of that was in the pandemic. Um, part of it, you know, the research is largely let me listen to other people's stories about how they've lived their life. It is a very storytelling approach to advice giving, but there are also practical things, particularly around the money chapter where, where I will interview an expert, get his voice in the page, cite some resources in the, in the appendix at the end. Um, and uh, so, yeah, about two years to write really, I've written three books, published three books, and they more or less have taken me two years each. Two years each. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of dedication. Respect that. Uh, you know, like I, I researched you and I found out like you were the dean at Stanford University, like one of the big names. And you have, you were dean for the freshmen, especially like the, for the young minds. I may I ask, like, did you feel any changes come for the young people at that time, like between 18 and 25 and young people today between 18 and 25? Did you think anything changes in their core behavior or in which direction you think like the young generation is going today? Um, I think the years 18 to 22 are years of greatest growth unparalleled outside of ages zero to two. So zero to two, we just do so much growing. We go from being yeah. a helpful to being a person with who can be mobile and walk and run and have language, maybe zero to three. And there's so much change that's so rapid. And I think it, you know, my anecdotal experiences that happens again 18 to 22 there's you know you're you're leaving home typically or really behaving differently vis-a-vis -vis with your family even if you are still at home you've got new classes and mentors and peers and there's an excitement of ideas and discovery having access to all kinds of topics you didn't have access to in secondary school um because you know, a secondary school can only teach so much, whereas a university, if that's where you are, just has this broad panoply of subjects you can you can take a class in or decide to make your major, your focus, your concentration. So it's a very combustive period in a good sense. Um, and I think that's when it's it's you know, it's not the first opportunity, but it's another major opportunity to say, wait a minute, who am I? Yes, yeah, I do. <laughs> What am I good at? What do I love? I mean, I think we have those conversations with ourselves when we're younger. In fact, one of the interesting things in this book, Harpreet, is the number of people who had a real um, aha moment when they were 14. Kirshad uh, Manji, a queer woman who's Muslim and helps people have difficult conversations, grew up in Canada, um, originally from Uganda. She says, I was 14 when I got kicked out of the madrasa for asking questions I wasn't supposed to ask. 
and she got kicked out on Saturdays, no longer allowed at the madrasa. So she went to the library instead and just began reading everything she could across many different subjects. And she had that hunger at 14 to figure out how was she going to reconcile these seemingly um, irreconcilable questions that were coming up for her in, in the study of Islam. And then another 14 year old, Hannah, who lived a wealthy white girl who lived in Atlanta, Georgia, here in the US, she realized at 14, there are homeless people in my town, and yet my family has a huge house. Like, why is that? How is that fair? How is that equitable? Um, and she convinced her family to sell this big house and take the and buy a different house, smaller, and take the proceeds and give them to a useful cause. And she had that stirring in her from this place of tremendous privilege at age 14. And there was someone else who was 14. It was like, oh my God, 14. So, you know, clearly there are these moments in life when we have this reckoning with ourselves. A two-year-old knows, a three-year-old knows, I want to tie my shoes. And when a parent's like, let me do it, they're like, no, I'm going to do it. And that insistence is still in us at 14 and 18 and 25 and 29 until we are finally that adult who's like, you know what? I'm taking care of business. My family may not understand it, but I know what I'm about. I'm able to pay my bills. I'm living in communities where I feel belonging. I feel I can be the identity that I am without worrying about what other people think. Like we come to this clarity of who we are and what we want. And then Harpreet, the prayer, whatever religion a person may be, or if not religious, the ask of the universe is, I have finally figured myself out. Please let me live long enough now with this knowledge because life has just started to really sing. So beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you, Julie. Like, because let me tell you, that age group between 18 and 22, that was the also age group for me as well. Like when I started asking questions for myself, what I'm gonna do, what I'm gonna do. And then I decided to come here <laughs> in Canada. So that was like also one of the major decisions I took in my life. Are you doing what you want to do? I started like now I'm alone. Uh, I was because so I read your story. You mentioned like at the age of 27 in probably like 1995, you were doing your best. You were ha had a good job. You As were, a lawyer. Yes. Yes. And you were getting praise for your achievements from the people around you. And you were also like financially and emotionally supportive uh, by your parents. I'm in that scenario now. Like I was, I'm always being okay, like financially and everything. My parents love me. They always bring everything that could bring happiness in my life. And suddenly I decided to come in Canada. I'm all alone, single. My family is all in India. So I'm trying to figure out, but I think I'm now doing everything. I. I'm also people's person. That's why I started a YouTube channel. That's why I can now connect with people. And so this is, I think, one of the mini steps I took. I love it. What are you studying? I studied already. I, I did bachelor's in civil engineering and okay. I study. I'm now doing a job here in Canada. Like What kind of job? So this is like a hydrogeological technician. It's a civil job. You study water underground before construction. Like whenever you construct big buildings, you have to study soils and water. I, I do participate in that. Okay, and you like it? 
I like that. I also like my YouTube stuff. I also want to make this bigger as much. Yes, good, good. Well, I wish you luck in that. And I'm glad that you're enjoying the civil engineering stuff and and understanding water is so important. You're talking to me here in California where, you know, we yes, yeah. count on the aqueduct and the, you know, the, the, the rainfall is not enough and, and we are in this terrible drought and, and water is yeah. obviously essential to life you know that everybody listening knows that um so i'm glad that you're in that work and i hope it it continues to be challenging and exciting for you even as you do this important youtube work um nice. yeah Thank so uh, listen i think i'm so glad you found me it sounds like we're wrapping up right yeah i just have one yeah. question to ask yeah. like i was watching your youtube video of, of ted talk and first yeah. of all like congratulations Thank congratulations you. on like crossing two million views on that video like i love it there's actually i'm sound like i'm bragging now but if you go on the youtube on the on the ted site i'm close to six million now wow like that's yeah. such a huge i'm very proud of myself and and you know oh. I'm, I'm bragging but yes on the youtube site it's close to two but on the ted site it's close to six wow. so that's yeah so amazing i was checking out the comments like do you go often see the people comment because i'm gonna share three comments and okay. i really want your perspective on those. okay i used to in the first few weeks it came out in the fall of 2016 and i i interacted with the comments for a couple of weeks but no i haven't in uh, in five years so go ahead ask wow. me no these are the popular comments so this first comment i'm gonna short phrasing it thank you thank you so much julie like for coming to the channel coming to the show i would really appreciate like could you tell the listeners if someone wants to connect to you like what is the best way to reach out to you absolutely i do have a youtube channel but i don't use it so don't 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 go there for my main stuff um i am jay lifcott hames and i know harpreet will put it um in the info my first initial last name i'm that everywhere on social media so jay lifcott hames whether it's instagram facebook twitter TikTok, clubhouse um jay lifcott hames follow me there my website is julielifcotthames.com and you can learn about my books there and kind of more broadly what I'm about. I also have this new online space I call Julie's Pod, which is uh, jlithcotthames.bulletin.com. It's a new writing platform. And I write about once a week, short form on what is on my mind as I contemplate my life and what's going on in the world. I write something that I hope will engage readers. You comment there. If you don't want to comment in public, you can call my hotline 1-877-HI-JULIE. That's plus one for US, 877-HI-JULIE. And leave me what's a voicemail with what's on your mind. I listen, I care, and then I report out on Facebook Lives once a week on Monday specific time on the calls that have come in. So in Julie's pod, I'm trying to create space. I'm trying to create a container where humans, myself included, can be vulnerable. And we can all listen to what's going on with each other and feel more belonging, less alone. That's what I'm about. Thank you so much, Julie, again, for coming to the show. I really appreciate that. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Take care and keep up the great work. Thank you.